first podcast is episode one, COVID-19, and because it's our first episode, we're going to give a brief introduction and a quick shout out to Mike for helping me edit this prior to. Welcome to Sober Discussions. This is Steve and Mike, and sometimes you just need to take out the trash. Why we have a podcast is we just want to be kind of more or less, uh, as Rise Against would say, a megaphone. And uh, we don't want to choke on words we meant to say. Let's say it. Let's be a fighting force. And if there's biased information, let's shake out the trash of all this nonsense and then sort through it. And then let's research it and have a sober discussion and be reasonable and honest about it. Man. Part of the reason for doing a podcast like this is just to kind of get data out there that maybe people don't, don't have see. as or, much or don't right, see. Right. Or, or haven't haven't had the opportunity or really just didn't even think about doing the research even though that information was available. Yeah, and just having that information, just being more informed helps mm-hmm. us make better decisions and helps us have a better perspective on life. Uh, why I think it would benefit us and other people is that we can definitely say, hey, uh, I just did my research. I was listening to this podcast. They gave me uh, this information and this is what makes sense to me. This is my opinion. Have that idea. Make a difference. Get people more informed. Get people more, you know, able to uh, see other people's perspectives. Maybe we can come to a common ground. Who knows? Like all, all we want to do is just be reasonable, anyways, uh, for the betterment of my, our country. I love my country personally, but yeah, I, the more informed that we all are, we don't have to have the same opinions. Right. No. Exactly. No, but, you're exactly right. But the more informed we are, the better decisions we can each make as Americans as we go out. We live our lives and make the country a better place than it is. Uh, I just also wanted to make it very clear. Uh, we have a blog. It's called uh, soberdiscussions.blogspot.com. Again, that is soberdiscussions.blogspot.com. And that is where we're going to post all of our information that we talked about. Uh, definitely have your own opinion. Definitely do the research. Uh, if you don't like it, that's totally cool. Our whole objective right here is just to have a reasonable conversation about trash uh, that has just been tossed in a garbage bin. And that's kind of where my uh, inspiration came from for the album art. I I drew it and I asked Mike, hey, do you want to change it or anything? He's like, no. Well, what'd you say, Mike? I I think it's perfect as it is. There's a lot of trash going on. There's a lot of trash going on, definitely. Hope to be able to take some of it out. Amen. Yeah, if we can throw that trash and put it where it belongs, let's do it, right? right. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, thank you for joining us on our first episode. Uh, I am Steve. I'm Mike. So, uh, episode one, COVID-19. We're going to have an overview of the pandemic and how it started. Uh, we're going to have a couple of snapshots from our friends of the CDC and World Health Organization. Let's take a quick look at COVID-19 and how it started. According to the World Health Organization, COVID first starts in Wuhan, China, December 31st, 2019, as a quote-unquote viral pneumonia. Something I did not know that one might think is interesting, World Health Organization has a platform called EIOS, short for Epidemic Intelligence from Open Sources, which found a media post from Cluster Causes of Pneumonia of Unknown Case. So let's jump to the next day, January 1st, 2020. 
Happy New Year, everyone, by the way. I uh, had some great times. I'm sure you did, too. But the World Health Organization activated its Incident Management Support Team, or IMST, for public health emergencies. Sounds like we are definitely looking into it. So thank you, World Health Organization, for taking this seriously that was perceived to be a potential threat. Uh, so let's jump to January 11th. Now, this is starting to get a little bit more serious. Uh, January 11th, we have the first documented death according to the World Health Organization. You can also see that on their website for the World Health Organization website. It's available to everyone. So let's jump to two days later, January 13th, Thailand reported an imported case of lab-confirmed novel coronavirus from Wuhan, the first recorded case outside of China. Then following day, January 14th, the World Health Organization held a press briefing which stated that based on experience with respiratory pathogens, the potential for human-to-human -human transmission in the 41 confirmed cases in China existed. It is certainly possible that there is limited human-to-human -human transmission, end quote. Mike, can you run the clip? Yes, I can. Let me open this link real quick. On January 9, Chinese authorities made a preliminary determination of a new coronavirus identified in a hospitalized person with pneumonia in Wuhan. Two days later, Chinese authorities uh, issued additional information updating case numbers to 41 from initially 59 and reporting one death. Chinese authorities also shared the complete genomic sequence with WHO and with the public. Epidemiologic investigations are underway, um, and we're waiting for the results of, of these. Um, but yes, it's certainly possible that there's limited human-to-human -human transmission. Um, there are many similarities to SARS and MERS. This is a coronavirus, um, and, and this helps us. The experience that we have with SARS and with MERS, uh, the experience of our member states who have experience with these pathogens, have prepared us for this. This is not unexpected. Um, this is something that the global community is preparing for, and all of the systems are in place you know, to activate our plans and to utilize the materials that we developed for SARS, for MERS, and adapt them for the current situation. There are some uh, antivirals um, that are in consideration, and these are antivirals that are used for other diseases that could be repurposed for a novel coronavirus infection. Um, there are immunotherapies um, that are under consideration, uh, monoclonals or polyclonals. Um, but again, there's a lot of work uh, that, that's ongoing for MERS coronavirus that can be applicable here. So thanks, Mike, for playing that. Uh, what are your thoughts? after seeing that video because that was the first time that I initially saw it when I found that link. That was the first time for me as well and I like that she notes that we have past experience of different viruses that have come around like SARS and MERS that she mentioned and that the experience we've had with those can help us with fighting coronavirus. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, on top of that too, Mike, that they were very straightforward. Uh, they definitely felt like it was a problem. Uh, they definitely wanted to have a press conference. Uh, they also wanted to uh, let the public know what's going on so they could attempt to uh, create a sense of trust and a sense of that they have, you know, uh, working on a hold of the situation. Anyways, that's kind of my five seconds so as of october 5th 
and we're jumping quite a ways ahead now. Our current numbers, according to the CDC, are as follows. In the United States, there were 7.3 million total cases of coronavirus. There were 209,000 recorded deaths. And in the last seven days from October 5th, there were I've recorded 301,000 cases. Now, according to that, 301,000 cases in the course of seven days is around 40,000 cases per day. And that's across, of course, the whole continent, which obviously we would prefer to have no cases, but it can be relieving to know that 40,000 across the United States may not be as scary as it might have been when it first started. An article updated from the World Health Organization also on October 5th states the following. The number of new cases per week has remained stable at 2 million for the past three weeks, with the cumulative total of over 34.8 million cases. Over 1 million deaths have now been reported globally, of which the majority were reported in the region of the Americas at 55% of the deaths, followed by Europe with 23%. In the past week, the regions of the Americas, Southeast Asia, and Europe accounted for 91% of new cases. Five countries reported 60% of new global cases this past week, while Israel registered the highest incidence. Globally, the highest percentage of cases have been reported in the 29 to, or sorry, the 25 to 39 age group, with approximately 50% of cases in the 25 to 64 age group. However, the percentage of deaths increases with age, and approximately 75% of deaths are in those aged 65 years and above. Uh, so, Mike, if I can interject, uh, a couple of takeaways that, that I found was interesting. Uh, just wanted to more emphasize when I read through this myself of over 1 million deaths have now been reported globally. So, like, we're definitely over the 1 million mark, which is kind of absolutely crazy. Uh, the majority were reported in the northern region of the United States by 55%. So, obviously, it doesn't take a third grader to figure out that uh, more than you know 50% is over half of that. And approximately 50% of cases is in the 25 to 64-year range. I think the reason why that number, at least if I was to speculate on that, is because we're the workforce right now. We're the ones that are being involved in that and we're the ones that are definitely being impacted by that the most and another interesting thing about that too is all the kids are back in school now mm -hmm. and many of them may be picking up the virus but the kids just don't seem to have very many symptoms or sometimes may not even have any symptoms at all which in a way is nice because <laughs> kids aren't going to be having too much trouble with it but obviously those of us in the the workforce are a lot more susceptible to catching it. And uh, with that last point in there where it says that 75% of the deaths are those age 65 and above. Fortunately, a lot of the people in that age range are retired and can stay at home. In a couple of segments later, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what it means to you, what it means to your family, or even your animals. I did look that up and that's on the CDC website. Uh, we're looking at the, the next uh, figure, 
uh, that I found that was kind of uh, interesting is that we're just seeing this graph and Mike, you're looking at this graph right now. We can see uh, a huge spike in the United States and it was all just about equal if you look over about March or April uh, and May when we had you know that quarantine and that lockdown. We'll talk a little bit more about it, about why that's kind of important for me, uh, at least a takeaway for me during that, but we can definitely see a huge spike. Now, when we're looking at this huge spike, uh, deaths are more or less uh, decreasing in that graph. Uh, if you see that, Mike, right here, because that's the deaths. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking right here at the 40,000 that we were talking about a little bit earlier. So, like, uh, cross-referencing that information from the CDC as well as the World Health Organization definitely is very accurate information according to uh, the graphs that they have provided for us anyways. In the graph, we see the biggest spike in death happened kind of from the beginning of March till halfway through April, and then it dips down clear up until May or June, and then it kind of starts to pick slowly back up right. up into the summer, but it never reaches the point that it did in early March. Yeah, definitely, and we will have some really good information about it, at least my hypothesis. I'm obviously uh, not a scientist. I'm not a researcher, but uh, based on my research of, of what I've been able to see, uh, I think that it was really good that we had that lockdown. Did I particularly enjoy lockdown? No, I didn't. Mike, did you like lockdown? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, it sucks. Uh, so anyways, I just wanted to say that I think that it definitely could have been a lot worse if we didn't have that lockdown. And we can see that huge spike right during that lockdown. And then when things started opening up gradually, uh, we were able to see that you know it definitely had some damage control. And it could have definitely been worse. Uh, had, had we not do that now, do I think we should have a lockdown now? I don't particularly think so, but that's that's just my opinion. And then, uh, so Mike, uh, this second portion you were really passionate about, uh, you gave me some information. I've got some snapshots uh, that I can also look at uh, that I thought were important. So this more or less is just talking about uh, who who's eligible for it, uh, for the economic package specifically for... Uh, the uh, the CARE Act. We'll talk a little bit more about it, uh, but this is just basically uh, general uh, questions of information like who's eligible, uh, who's not eligible, uh, who can take action. This is from the IRS website, by the way, and uh, what to kind of expect. So I, I just wanted to give a brief overview uh, for our listeners if they want to look at it. I don't know if a whole lot of people have. I definitely think it's some good information if you're curious about it. Uh, they really do go in-depth. I was actually surprised. So a, a couple of takeaways is that the U.S. residents have received the economic impact payment of $1,200 or $2,400 if they filed marriage, uh, jointly of course, and if they are not a dependent of another taxpayer and have uh, work-eligible Social Security with adjusted gross income up to $150,000 for married couples filing jointly. Uh, I'm definitely in that range. Uh, I don't know about Mike, uh, but but I'm definitely uh, not in that range. $112,500 for head of the household filers and $75,000 uh, total for all uh, other uh, eligible individuals. So uh, the breakdown is that taxpayers will receive a 5% reduction in their payment uh, for the amount of the uh, AGI and above uh, for these amounts. Uh, and what kind of hit me uh, in this graph is that eligible retirees and recipients of Social Security retirement 
whether that's uh, survivor or disability uh, benefit, uh, any of those uh, who do not file a tax return will receive a $1,200 payment. So what that's telling me is, is that they're like, hey, uh, we understand that people have uh, stuff. We understand that people are uh, utilizing uh, those social security programs and we definitely want to uh, help them as well. So anyways, Mike, do you have anything to say about that? or? Yeah, so I, I think that it was a very... Uh, I, I don't know if wise is the right word. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I, I just think it was a very good decision for them to help with this kind of stimulus payment and package for people. There were some people that probably received it that didn't need it. I agree. I completely agree with that. That's a very reasonable statement. But Definitely. There, there are those who definitely needed it and probably needed more. Right. I but, can agree with that. But obviously the yeah. government can only help so much. And the fact that they even helped in the first place... Yeah. You know, shows that they still do care. and To an extent, anyways, right? <laughs> <laughs> to an extent. But right. that extra income was, would help sustain a lot of those people who are maybe in smaller businesses struggling right. to keep their businesses sure. afloat. Definitely. And, and we'll have a little bit more information about that, too. Uh, so uh, one major key uh, important thing uh, that I did during my research uh, going through this information, I found out a very excellent post in the Washington Post, if you hate it, uh, that is your opinion uh, if you like it which I really appreciated that information uh, you might find this beneficial uh, I didn't think that it was very biased when they said this but it says analysis say around 125 million to 150 million Americans are expected to receive the one-time payment the first wave of recipients include mainly people who filed a 2018 or 2019 tax return and give the IRS uh, the direct uh, deposit information. So according to this information analysis project TLDR uh, is that it's about 1.25 to 1.8 billion dollars uh, has been given to the US citizens to qualify. So from a uh, usafacts.org there was an article here and it says uh, it talks about major features of the CARES Act. Um, so what exactly is the CARES Act? In short Many things. The full bill is over 800 pages long, filled with appropriations as large as $500 billion, as well as many small appropriations, such as $100 million to support the Transportation Security Administration, and $9.1 million to support cybersecurity and infrastructure security. Uh, there's a chart here that breaks out the bill's largest spending areas that are each explained in context. So $500 billion, not million, but billion. Billions and billions. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, $500 billion uh, went to distressed businesses. $350 billion went to small businesses. $300 billion went to indiv individual checks. $250 billion to unemployment insurance. $150 billion to state and local governments. $140 billion to health. $45 billion to FEMA, and $35 billion to agriculture. So, as we were talking about before, right. the stimulus, pack stimulus package came out for many Americans into their homes, mm -hmm. but now the CARES Act has helped a lot of businesses who have struggled. That said, the unfortunate and sad truth is that there are still many businesses who didn't make it, and Definitely. those who are still struggling, but again... 
the government is doing what they can to support us. Or or what, what they at least feel that they're capable of. So uh, there was a couple of interesting articles. Uh, so according to our Washington Post, our president signed a $6.2 trillion uh, and also fired two inspector generals. So we've got uh, Michael... Atkinson. Now, why is that important? Well, he's the inspector general of the intelligence community, and a decision that Trump acknowledged was in response to Atkins having alerted lawmakers to the existence of a whistleblower complaint about the president's dealing with Ukraine. Oh, no, we've never heard that before. That's kind of weird. Uh, the matter ultimately led to Trump's impeachment in the House before his acquittal in Seattle. And there was another person... April 7th. So can you look at a calendar, Mike, and when April 7th was? April 7th is a Tuesday. So that was the day prior to. So right when this article came out, uh, the day before of this article, uh, we've got this Glenn Fine, who had been the acting Pentagon Inspector General and was informed Monday that he was being replaced at the Defense Department by Shane O'Donnell, uh, currently the Inspector General of the EPA. Uh, O'Donnell will simultaneously be Inspector General at the EPA and acting of uh, IG at the Pentagon until a permanent replacement is confirmed in the defense. So he really uh, removed uh, something that I feel is checks and balances uh, because it was an inconvenience for him. And I feel like he replaced it uh, for someone else just so he could push the bill forward. Uh, one thing I did want to uh, bring up, Mike, if you can scroll up to that video clip, so this is our President of the United States, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all very much. It's a very important day. I'll sign the single biggest economic relief package in American history, and I must say, or any other package, by the way. It's twice as large as any relief ever signed. It's uh, $2.2 billion, but it actually goes up to $6.2 potentially billion dollars, trillion dollars. So, <laughs> bill. Nothing like that. And this will deliver urgently needed relief to our nation's families, workers, and businesses. And uh, that's what this is all about. Now, I'm going to sign this, and it's great honor. $6.2 trillion. I've never signed anything with a T on it. I don't know if I can handle this one, Mitch. We can't chicken out at this point, I don't think so, huh? All right, thank you all. Mike, what are your thoughts on that one? Well, I have definitely never signed anything with a T in it either. <laughs> I think most people have, to be honest. like Or a B. Or, or, or you know, uh, an M. Or um, maybe a thousand, like in a thousand as far as that goes. But uh, definitely not million, uh, billion, or trillion. Uh, one thing that uh, I thought uh, was kind of funny was... Uh, he, he didn't even really uh, set straight that it was billion until about halfway through that uh, commentary that it was billion versus trillion. And ladies and gentlemen, if you think about a trillion, uh, think about how large of a number that is versus billion. Uh, that's, that's a lot of financial strain that we should definitely take seriously. Uh, I felt like when I uh, initially saw that video... 
uh, I thought, like, hey, this is a very serious deal. We've got a lot of Americans that are dying right now in dire need. Let's definitely take this a little bit more seriously. I know you're trying to, you know, make it a little bit lighthearted, but uh, I really felt like it was kind of a joke to him. Anyways, what do you think, Mike? Well, joke or not, I I know that he was probably just trying to do what he thought was going to be the yeah. best for the country. Fair. Um, it, it, it's a hard situation because the country is, you know, still in dire need in, Definitely. in different locations. I agree. And the government has already helped once, and I, I don't know that we can expect them to help again, but with things reopening, the hope is that we won't need as much help and that things can kind of get back to what everybody seems to be calling this new normal. Uh, yeah, the new normal of me wearing a face mask everywhere I go and I work, you know, you know all that good stuff, but that's yep. okay. So, so be it, right? That's what we have to do to, to stay open. Uh, but uh, one thing I did want to share with you folks is actually in a taxpayer.net uh, so really all they're trying to do is just keep people more aware of what's going on. Uh, this is the article, though, uh, verbatim. It says, all in all, the funding legislation covers almost 900 pages. It is very specific about the dollar amounts to be provided, the various federal agencies either responding or to be impacted by the virus outbreak. But when it comes to the economic assistance to the private sector, specifically the private sector, uh, most of the decisions, how the money will be allocated, has been written as, Mike, can you read that part for me? To be determined. And left largely to the discretion of the Department of Treasury. In other words, the White House. So, I mean, I feel like we definitely have checks and balances in place uh, for that. And uh, it really uh, makes me kind of anxious when I think about uh, to be determined because it really could go anywhere. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, they, they can say that it's going to go out to businesses and those who are in most need, but is it really? Is it, though? Right, exactly. And uh, we, we just, as we previously talked about, we've got two inspector generals that were those checks and balances that got replaced. I just felt like there's just a little bit of, of uh, something weird's happening that maybe doesn't quite make a lot of sense. Agreed. So how many pages is 900 pages, right? So I thought, okay, we've all read Harry Potter, right? We've all read Harry Potter as a kid or, or at some point or someone's read it. Anyways, the first three books of Harry Potter are not even 800 pages. Three books combined. Combined. All three of those books combined. It, you can put book one, Philosopher's Stone. Uh, this is based on uh, UK cells. Uh, the Philosopher's Stone, which we in the United States know as the Sorcerer's Stone, is 223 pages, right? Uh, the Chamber of Secrets is 251, and the Prisoner of Azkaban is 317. So if you do the math, that's not even 800 pages. So there has to be a lot of stuff in that bill in the CARES Act, and it didn't seem to me that it was really given to the public about a lot of what it was. So, like, it really just felt really just disheartening uh, when I was looking through the segment. But what do you think, Mike? Well, the other thing that's kind of troubling about that is in 900 pages, there's a lot still to be determined. There's a lot still to be determined. You exactly nailed it, Mike. If, Thank you so much. If, I missed that, by the way. If they're going right. to say, yeah, if they're going to say to be determined in a 900-page document of their plan, right? What really is their plan? Yeah. So what is the plan, right? So I think a lot of Americans kind of felt that. 
I had a little bit of like feelings about it, but when I was really going to you know the the raw information, uh, I really had to really take a big look at it, and uh, it, it's kind of scary, you know. And uh, I initially thought that the stimulus package was just uh, 4.2 trillion. I didn't know that there was another 2.1 uh, 2. whatever trillion. So we've got uh, 4.2 trillion. Uh, that I was aware of, and then really uh, an additional, like the actual thing that they're actually giving people and businesses, uh, two uh, trillion. Uh, looking through it, like I I'm not saying in this segment, but definitely do the math. See what businesses got bailed out. Uh, think about it. Uh, there's a lot of people uh, that really benefited from it, including uh, some of the lawmakers and including the president. Uh, now, I'm not saying. Uh, to believe me, do the sources, do the research. Uh, I, we really want you to have your own opinion. Uh, we want to tell you ours, but please, like, do do the research, like, look into it, and we'll always have our sources cited, especially with issues like this, because we don't want to give uh, false information. Uh, we also don't want to uh, just come up with stuff on our own that we can't back up. Anyways, what do you think, Mike? I don't know where all that money went, and I don't actually personally know any business owners right. or small businesses that did benefit from this. Right. I agree. I completely agree. But clearly, I mean, $2 trillion could have really helped a lot of businesses, right? Absolutely. Anyway, so that was just my observation on it. Yeah. My hope is that many businesses did benefit from this, but I no. genuinely don't know. Uh, yeah. You know, that's a very fair assessment, Mike. My gut reaction is uh, I'm kind of... I'm kind of in my own person. Anyways, I'm kind of a little bit of a pessimist. So I'm not really like a glass half full kind of guy anyways. I'm kind of half like the glass half empty. And then if I'm trying to be reasonable, it's kind of like uh, it's just halfway. Like it's not it's not empty. It's not full. It's just we're about halfway right now. So I've been trying to take this COVID stuff like, okay, it's just halfway. Let's just be realistic. But man, it's really disheartening. Glass is three quarters empty. <laughs> Glass is three quarters empty. Yeah, exactly. In our next section, I felt it very important for people to know this. So according to the CDC website, which we'll have posted, the question is, uh, in frequently asked questions, how does the virus spread? Mike, can you read that section for us? COVID-19 is thought to spread mainly from person to person, mainly through respiratory droplets produced when an infected person coughs, sneezes, or talks. These droplets can land in the mouths or noses of people who are nearby or possibly be inhaled into the lungs. Spread is more likely when people are in close contact with one another, hence the six-foot perimeter everywhere you go. No way! Is that for real? I mean, I mean, it seems like our CDC is pretty confident about it. I think that it actually works. Like, if we've got water droplets that are literally entering our uh, lungs that we're inhaling or breathing in or eating another person's saliva, like definitely like I understand why it's important to wear a mask and be six feet apart. COVID-19 seems to be spreading easily and sustainably in the community. Community spread means people have been infected with the virus in an area, including some who are not sure how or where they became infected. Ouch. How does it affect children? Most children with COVID-19 have mild symptoms or they may have no symptoms at all. Fewer children have been sick with COVID-19 compared to adults. However, children with certain underlying medical conditions and infants less than a year old might be at increased risk for severe illness from COVID. 
Some children have developed a rare but serious disease linked to COVID called the Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome, or MISC. How does it affect transmission from animals? Based on the limited information available to date, the risk of animals spreading COVID to people is considered to be low. We have another article from earthsky.org that was posted on September 29th of 2020. It says that the term mutation tends to conjure up images of dangerous new viruses with enhanced abilities sweeping across the planet. How many times have we like seen like zombies shows or whatever? They're like they're mutating. Oh no! Run for your life! We're right? gonna die! We're all gonna die! Uh, yeah. So while mutations constantly emerge and sometimes sweep, early mutations in SARS-CoV-2 have made their way around the world as the virus spread almost unnoticed. Mutations are a perfectly natural part of any, any organism, including viruses. The vast majority have no impact on a virus's ability to transmit or cause disease. Still, mutations are on the bedrock on which natural selection can act. Most common mutations will render a virus non-functional or have no effect whatsoever. Yet the potential for mutations to affect transmissibility of SARS-CoV-2 in its new human hosts exists. As a result, there have been intense efforts to determine which, if any, of the mutations identifiable since the first SARS-CoV-2 genome was sequenced in Wuhan may significantly alter viral function. An infamous mutation in this context is an amino acid change in the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, that protein that gives coronaviruses their characteristic crown-like projections and allows it to attach to host cells. This single character change in the viral genome, termed D614G, has been shown to increase virus ineffectivity in cells grown in the lab, though with no measurable impact on disease severity. Although this mutation is also near systematically found with three other mutations, and all four are now found in the in about 80% of sequenced SARS-CoV-2, making it the most frequent set of mutations in circulation. Uh, uh, Mike, do you have any like thoughts on that or uh, kind of about that article? I know it had a lot of information in it, but um, a couple of takeaways, at least for me, it, it said that it has changed, it has adapted. Uh, near the bottom, we see that there's uh, about four different types of viruses uh, that are in circulation. Uh, we do know that it is changing according to this, and they're just ba essentially saying, hey, it's it's still infecting people, but it's definitely mutating. That's what I got from it. EarthSky.org, going back to this article, um, towards the end of the article, it, it explains that this virus with its new strains has become more infective, meaning more people are catching it. Right. But... It doesn't seem to have any impact on how severe the disease is. So that being said, more people may be catching it, but not more people are dying from it. Not more people are dying from it. We can look if you, uh, even if you're listening right now, you can look back to uh, the CDC uh, that was as of October. This article is a little bit uh, older than October 5th, but you can see that there is definitely a higher spike in infectivity cases, but there's a lot lower death rate, which is good. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we had the lockdown was uh, to prevent, you know, that high death rate. We were flooding hospitals. 
Uh, it was really bad for a lot of people. We had the lockdown. The virus then was mutating. I don't know if it was like, hey, we're not killing enough people. Let's try to be more infective or something. I don't know. Uh, if I'm thinking like a virus for a second, if I was, you know, a virus, but I think it was really good. Anyways, uh, let's can let's continue to the next article. So this is actually from our friends from Italy. Now, if you remember, Italy really got wrecked during uh, the beginning uh, stages for COVID. So this is from Reuters.com. So it's an article. I found it. Uh, it came in June 4th of 2020. So it says, in reality, this is a quote, by the way, in reality, the virus clinically no longer exists in Italy, says Alberto Zangrillo, the head of San Rafael Hospital in Milan in the northern region of Lombardy, which has borne the brunt Italy's contagion. The swabs that were performed over the last 10 days show a viral load in quantitative terms that are absolutely infinitesimal compared to the ones carried out a month, specifically a month or two ago. So he told RAI Television. So what that tells me is that the virus in Italy has mutated and is far less lethal than the original state that that was in, which I think is a good news. There's another article that I found. Uh, It's called statnews.com. And we find in this article that was posted August 24th in 2020, it says, uh, recent reports have suggested that COVID-19 is becoming markedly less lethal in the United States. Our analysis of death rates and infection fatality rates from Arizona, uh, the U.S. as a whole and New York City shows it isn't indicating the public health measures to reduce infection uh, should not be relaxed. Determining the true fatality rate can also help identify how many more people with COVID-19 are benefiting uh, from advances in care. Determining the true fatality rate also can help identify why more people with COVID-19 are not benefiting from advancement in care. So as of July, the state of Arizona was reporting a fatality rate of 2.1% among people who contracted COVID-19. That is remarkably lower than reports in the spring from areas such as New York City, which show fatality rates as high as 10%. So going back to what we talked before, we had that lockdown the virus adapted. That tells me with those numbers from two experts, from two researchers, that's showing what I feel, uh, and I'm obviously not a researcher, but from what I feel is that it is killing less people. Yeah, and that that's obviously what everybody wants to be seeing. We right. There's all kinds of memes going around about how terrible 2020 is and how we're not ready to bring 2021 in until we know 2020 is done. Yeah, amen. Amen. No, you're right. I agree. I completely agree. But yeah, with these numbers going down, I mean, that, that gives us hope that maybe this will end soon, but it still has the potential to last another year or two Oof. or three Oof. or. Who oh, knows? magic card. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, uh, one, one uh, anecdotal, I guess, is what I just wanted to tell uh, the rest of the people is uh, this information is definitely hope. Now, I'm not saying that COVID is not lethal. Uh, We obviously can see that our charts, we discussed that before, and it is still killing people according to the CDC, which I believe in. Uh, However, COVID is at 
an all-time high based on what we have discussed previously. Numbers and statistics are showing that new strains could potentially be less lethal than the first strain that had a more significant death toll while we were in a lockdown. I will continue to wear a mask in public. I don't want to inadvertently harm a loved one with medical conditions of them being old or contracted in my family or me for that matter. I really don't want to get it. I don't want to get wrecked and, you know, uh, get hosed and who knows what long-term effects this virus is because it's so new. But let's definitely see what the World Health Organization and the CDC gives us. And I hope they give us a green light. I would love a green light. I definitely don't think we're out of the woods yet. When this first happened, I... I don't watch news. I don't follow that stuff at all. Partially because of, like you've said, a lot of it's biased. Right. A lot of it's negative. And, and it sucks. And it's really just not <laughs> anything that I want to follow. I mean, right. obviously I should be aware of what's going on so that I can be prepared for things coming. But right. uh, when this first hit, I kind of just had the opinion that lockdown was dumb and that I didn't want to deal with sitting at home all day and... Then, of course, the things started to open back up and we were required to wear masks and I didn't like it. But, you know, I, I came from a, a different perspective. I, I felt like, you know what, if I catch the virus, hey, at least I get it over with. If it kills me, well, then I'm probably supposed to be gone. <laughs> get wrecked. <laughs> oh, just kidding. But that, <laughs> that being said, I also want to be respectful of everybody else who felt differently. Right. There, there are those who have been worried about this from day one and will continue to worry about it. And for those kinds of people, I want to be respectable. I want to wear my mask and support them because I don't want to pass it around to somebody who is afraid or somebody who could die from it, you know, who has a higher chance of of not surviving. Uh, definitely. And if I can interject uh, just uh, one thought that I had, uh, I have a really great friend by the name of Wes. He is a firm believer in masks. Uh, he's a firm believer in social distancing. He's a firm believer in following what the CDC and the World Health Organization has to say. I guess what I'm trying to say is, in lesser words, that when I go to visit him at his house, uh, we are six feet apart. We always wear our mask. And if we eat something, then as soon as we're done, we put our mask back on and we wash our hands. So, uh, I mean, that is a minor inconvenience for me, but that makes him feel a lot safer and I respect him. So I'm just going to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, we, we need to make sure we're being respectable for those people who are worried. And Definitely. Whether we feel the same or not, like you said, it's a minor inconvenience. It doesn't stop mm -hmm. us from doing what we need to do. So I say we keep wearing our masks and fighting the fight until we mm -hmm. can get through this. Fight the good fight. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. While we're wrapping things up, I kind of was thinking about uh, some takeaways. And uh, Mike suggested COVID-19. I wanted to cover the... Uh, presidential debate, uh, but Mike brought up a very valid point about uh, COVID being a topic that he wanted to cover, and I didn't know what I was uh, expecting. Uh, as I was doing the research, it kind of had a, I guess you'd say, like, trail, yeah, more or less, and uh, it was very eye-opening to see what I was researching uh, and what media and other people were saying and the actual numbers and I think a lot of Americans are more along the same lines. It's just been directed uh, in an appropriate way. Me personally, I feel that. 
I think we're coming together as a nation and as a global family, more or less, as far as all of our countries coming together and trying to, you know, fight this. And I do realize that the United States has been responsible for 55% of the cases. I think that, well, maybe we're not taking it seriously. I'm not trying to talk about this in the segment, but uh, just think about why we're having higher cases than other countries and, and why that's happening and what other countries are doing that we're not necessarily. And honestly, if I can get this crap over with, I definitely will. And like, am I saying I want a lockdown? No, but if it's just simply wearing masks, then let's definitely do it. Yeah, I mean, with the United States kind of having the majority of cases, I mean, there are those who are taking it very seriously, and then there are those who maybe aren't taking it as seriously. And I, I didn't take it as serious as I should have when it first came out. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm actually at fault of that, too. And my friend Wes actually is like, hey, like, think about it, Steve. And I'm like, all right. No, you're right. That's fair. I'll think about it. And then you had me do the research, and I'm like, holy smokes, like, it was really eye-opening to me. I appreciate all the research you did. Steve headed a, uh, the vast majority of the research, and it's been very eye-opening. I've, I've learned a lot of new interesting things about this coronavirus and its history and where we're at now. Thanks for supporting our podcast. And if you would like to join the discussion, email us at soberdiscussions at gmail.com.